This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampake Pagan. Tony Parsons is the author of the best selling Man and Boy and one of the founding fathers of what is popularly referred to as Ladlit. Recently, he's embarked on a new series of thrillers featuring London police detective Max Wolf. I caught up with Tony a few weeks ago at this year's Singapore Writers Festival, where we had a chat about his new novels. Hello, my name's Tony Parsons, and uh, I'm a writer, I'm an author, and a journalist from London, England. So when I picked up the murder bag, my first instinct was, hey, this is something of a far cry from Man and Boy, but it wasn't really. And Max Wolf seems to come from a very similar place in that he seems to have the very, a very similar DNA, which is a sense of compassion and also an intensity and passion that was, that was kind of dominant in all of you characters. So tell me about the origins of Max Wolf. Where did he come from? Max Wolf comes from a conversation I had with the film director Sam Mendes on a winter night in 2010 when I was at a film screening in Soho in London. And um, Sam Mendes had, had been a fan of Man and Boy and uh, had written to me about Man and Boy and how much he liked that novel. And and I'm a huge fan of Sam Mendes. And I Aren't think we he's all? A yeah. Brilliant, brilliant film director. I loved American Beauty. And um, so I kind of I don't really don't really know the guy, but I admire his work, and he you know and uh, he liked one of my books, and we stayed in touch. And he he organised this, this uh, screening of a film that he liked that he thought people were not seeing, not one of his own films. Um, and he we were having a, a drink, and uh, before we went in, and we were saying, "What well, you know? What are you up to?" And he said, "Oh, the next thing I'm going to do is uh, direct a James Bond movie," and uh, which seven years on seems like a fantastic career move because he made Skyfall, which is probably the one, great... One of the best. James Bond movie. And, um, and, but at the time, it was a surprise. And he said, yeah, oh, I loved those books when I was a kid. I really loved those books. I'm going to try and reread in all the books. I'm going to try and put what I loved on the screen. And um, when I went home that night, I thought, I'm, you know, because I'd love those books too, exactly. And when he was talking about himself responding to Ian Fleming at 11, 12, 13, you know, just absolutely echoed the way I've, I'd felt about those books. And so I started reading Casino Royale that night, uh, the, the first James Bond book. And by the time I had finished page one, I knew I wanted to create my own series, Hero. I wanted to create my own, uh, my own version of uh, a 007 character and because I think it's an incredible literary achievement to we don't think of Ian Fleming or um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as being or Agatha Christie as being great writers we don't put them up there with with Dickens and Shakespeare and Philip Roth and all the rest of them the greats but I think it's an incredible achievement to come up with a character a series character that resonates with generations so that's what i wanted to do well you're looking to craft a james bond because max seems like he has a tenderness and vulnerability that bond never did yeah no he's not i wasn't i was trying to to create a serious hero and, and you have to do it in your own way and you have to do it so so the only the only real connection is that 
is you know is a series hero. Is a is a character, the same character that appears in in a succession of books, um, and he gets involved in all manners of scrapes and adventures. But you have to do it your own way. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if I'd have just done a James Bond knockoff, then it would have died a death and deserved to die a death. So you do it in your own <laughs> way. And um, you know, one of the things that one of the things about Maxwell is I wanted him to have a family. I didn't want him to be domestic. I didn't want him to be an mundane. alcoholic, bitter old man. Yeah, right? I didn't want him. I didn't want him to be. I didn't want him to be a cliche. But I wanted him to have some kind of family life, which you know, the James Bond, Jack Reacher, Philip Marlowe, they don't. They don't have family life, and I wanted. I wanted him to have that. I just thought it would give him an emotional depth, and which just would give me a richer material to work with. And uh, so I, I came up with the idea that we'd have a a daughter and a dog. You know, you'd be a single dad. And I and I like that idea. And I like that idea because it kind of gives him that root, the roots in family. But it also, you know, sets him free to... And it makes him likable. Yeah. Which... Yeah. Which I can't say for a lot of the series heroes that we, that we read of today. I, I guess the most popular one that has kind of lasted, you know, is Jack Reacher. Yeah. I mean, he is probably... I guess the standard now that everyone seeks to emulate. Yeah, I mean, he's very commercially successful now. And but there was a, like a fallow period in the in the middle of those books where they weren't as successful. But but Lee Child has stuck with his hero, and now <laughs> you know he's got a couple of Tom Cruise movies behind him. That's right. And and I can see the attraction of uh, I can see that. Then what's special about Jack Reacher is he? I mean, he's about he's about as alone as a man can get in the universe. He doesn't even have keys he yes. doesn't have front door keys and i think that you know in our world we we um we like that and we think that that's kind of enviable the way you know when i was reading ian fleming and you know nobody i knew traveled to the caribbean at the time i don't i didn't know anyone that had been to the caribbean and ian fleming had a house in jamaica he had golden eye and i think so you have to do it for your own time and i think that yeah i think lee child has done that brilliantly but um yeah i but I couldn't write a man alone just because of my, you know, who I am and, uh, you know, my history. You know, I needed, I needed him to have some kind of family life. Was crime fiction something that you've always wanted to do or was it something you've just always enjoyed reading? Well, I, I've always enjoyed reading it. But I, um, and when you have a success like Man and Boy, um, with a book which sells millions, it pushes your career in a certain direction. When you have that kind of lottery win, and there, and there is an element of real random luck in it that just you write something that you think is going to be quite a small, intimate, quiet chamber piece, and uh, and it just it just finds an audience around the world because people go through the same stuff. We all go through the same stuff. We all watch our parents getting older. We all um, watch our parents getting sick and die, and you know, and it breaks our hearts. And everybody goes through that. And um, so I kind of stumbled across um, a story, which was not just my story, but the story of millions of people. And the book was published very well. Um, you know, the, just just everything about it fell into place. Um, but it pushed my career in a certain direction for 10 years. And it was only really that conversation with Sam Mendes that made me realize what I wanted to do. Was there a concern... Because like you said, we don't necessarily put Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie up on the same pedestal. Was there a concern that people would think you've sold out because you're writing crime fiction? Well, you know, I mean, it was about as far away from selling out as I could because, I mean, I wrote, I cashed in my pension. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I, um, 
so it was it was far from the easy option. I cashed in my pension. Um, I wrote the book without a contract. So I mean, you can you know you've never got control over what people say about you, and you have to kind of just not care really. I think that's that's the secret. But I um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, people people can say what they like, but it was a it was a big thing. My, you know, I had conversations with my agent, and my agent said he thought it was a good idea, but I would have to start again. That I couldn't that if I published the Max Wolf books with the publishers of Man and Boy and the books that came after that, then they'd see it as a, a bit of a whim, you know, a bit of indulge him, you know, as he'll get it out of his system. And I'm, and I'm pragmatic and practical and experienced enough to know that that's the kiss of death for any book, that if a book's not published with absolute conviction and passion, then it will just, it will just fail. Um, so I knew that I had to write it without a contract, with no guarantee of success, invest all my savings in myself um, and with no guarantee of what would happen. I just just a belief that I had a story to tell. And what a book. I mean, the, the, the murder bag is incredibly pacey and plotty with charismatic characters. And, and I, I, it, was a, it was a two and a half, three hour read for me. I did it in one sitting. And I was speaking to Lee Child a year ago and he was lamenting about young authors trying to get into crime fiction because it's so saturated. Is it easier for Tony Parsons to do it? Um, I, I think in a, in a way it's probably harder because there's a, an expectation of, you know, when we all get put into boxes, we all get labeled, you know, I mean, that's just uh, part of not just the literary life, but that's just part of the, the, the world, the way the world is. Um, so I had to break away from expectations and I knew that I had to, you know, to do the first one had to be really, really good. Um, you know, as good as I could make it with the, the you know, just working at, at the, at the limits of, of whatever ability and craft that I had. And that's why I took two years on it and the rest of them, you know, I, I mean, I think that's a long time for a book, but I had to work out the world of the world of Max Wolf. I had to work out the universe of the story um, and all the elements had to be in place. So I think it is saturated, but I think good stuff, you do good work and, and good things will happen. I think that, um, you know, you, you, you'll find an, audience if it's good enough speaking of the world i absolutely love the idea of a black museum i think it's genius does such a place exist anywhere yeah the uh the black museum is uh, formerly called the crime museum of the metropolitan police and it is uh, on the first floor of new scotland yard it's room 101 uh you walk in and there's this little office space and you walk beyond that and you walk into 200 years of history there's the the case books uh, on the Jack the Ripper murder case, you know, not Jack the Ripper as a historical figure, but when it was an active murder investigation, um, it's very difficult to get into the Black Museum. It's, it's very uh, difficult to get access to it. Um, and I loved the idea of it. And I, I was surprised it had never been used in, you know, I wanted to, I knew that if I wrote a crime novel, I had to be aware of the traditions of crime fiction, but they had to bring something fresh to the table. And I wanted Max Wolf to have a kind of Yoda figure that he could turn <laughs> to in moments of of, of uh, loss and confusion for guidance. And I thought, what a great idea to have uh, the, the curator of the Black Museum pointing him in a direction saying, well, have you seen this? Because it is just, you know, it's two centuries of history. He's like a weird and twisted cue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit like that. And I and I um, 
I've spent time in the Black Museum now, but when I first wrote about it, I um, I'd never been there. I just used my imagination, and um, and the the police liked it. They liked the portrait that I did of it, and uh, and when I went up there for the first time, they were pointing at the curator of uh, who's become a friend and saying, "Well, you really captured him." You really, and I kind of just made up the character so of uh, and the the. And you kind of you look at things when you use your imagination to write some about something that's real. You look at well, what did I get wrong? What did I let? It's very cold in there. They kept, they keep it at really just above freezing. It's like a mortuary in there. And I didn't know that until I'd gone in there. But I became, you know, I became a bit of an expert now. I remember P. D. James once um, had a tour of uh, of uh, the Black Museum, and she was with she was taken around with two senior detectives. And what struck me, what really impressed me, was that these two senior detectives had never been in there before. That's how tough it is to get in there. I mean, wow. uh, Conan Doyle used to have a key. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle used to have a key. So if he was a bit stuck with his, the latest Sherlock Holmes tale, he'd just let himself into the Black Museum and uh, have a poke around. But, um, yeah, they don't do that anymore. But, um, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a really fascinating place. And uh, I think that... Um, there's a growing interest in it now. And have you worked out what our fascination is with characters like Jack the Ripper and the twins, this idea? I mean, it can't just be the mystery of why they did something. I mean, is it because we're just fascinated by sick and twisted people? I think it's, uh, I think it's a really elemental uh, condition. I think it's, it's good and evil. I think it's that. I think it's something as primal as that, that we recognize that... Uh, Good and evil both exist in the world, and I think um, I think any religion allows for the existence of both good and evil. Um, and I think even people that have no religion are aware of the existence of good and evil. Um, and I think it's as fundamental as that. I mean, writing crime fiction sort of encourages you to write about. Um, the world as it is now, you know, it encourages you to write about, you know, the last Maxwell book was about people trafficking. The next one is about the aftermath of a terrorist atrocity. And it sort of encourages you to take on the age that you live in and to write about the great issues um, of your own age. But I think beyond all that, it's good and evil. It's, it's what will triumph. And speaking about writing about things that, uh, you know, featured in the age that you live in. I mean, The Murder Bag came out in 2014, am I right? Yeah. Which was about when these conversations about privilege and social inequality were kind of really gaining yeah. traction. Yeah. And it's featured prominently because you end up killing lots of rich and elite people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah <laughs> I, 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 it was interesting that, the, you know, I began when um, David Cameron became prime minister in in the UK and it felt like there was a resurgence of class privilege, you know, because I think Cameron was our 19th prime minister that went to Eton, Eton which yeah. is our most, uh, you know, exclusive private school. So we've had a lot of prime ministers that, that went to Eton, but we hadn't, we hadn't had one for half a century, you know, so there's the period that I'd grown up in uh, and grown to middle age in was this period of incredible meritocracy where we had, I think... It wasn't just an old boys club. Uh, no, and we had, you know, we had people that were coming from all different kinds of backgrounds and especially coming from state schools. And then that seemed to be, that seemed to be o- over. Um, but there was a definite, a definite feeling that the old order, the old establishment was, um, was, was coming back. And I like the idea, you know, closed societies are interesting. Closed societies, just dramatically 
you know, a submarine or a private school. You know, these are, these are you know, a spaceship. You know, these sealed, hermetically sealed worlds are interesting. Dramatically, they're, they're interesting. And they offer great material to the writer. So, but it did, um, I think you, you have to have radar. You know, you have to be attuned to your time. You have to be attuned to not, not what's happening in other books because they're responding to, to the world as it was a year or 18 months or two years ago. But now... So who is going <laughs> to play Max Wolf in the inevitable series? Oh, well, I guess Netflix show as one is wont to do these days. <laughs> well, my theory has always been that um, Max Wolf, when Max Wolf makes it to the screen, he should be played by an unknown actor. He should be played by, because the things that I've really loved over the last 20 years and the performances I've really loved and the series I've really loved, uh, things like, James Gandolfini in The Sopranos, Sopranos. Uh, Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad, John Hamm in Mad Men. And these were all working actors, but they were not you, – you, you couldn't have named them. You couldn't have named them. And, uh, yeah, Idris Elba and Luther. Yeah, and exactly. And, uh, and then they inhabit these roles. They inhabit these roles, and you, there's a credibility to those roles. And, of course, nobody likes the idea – of an unknown. I mean, producers don't like the idea. Production companies don't like the idea of an unknown because it's not, you can, it's not something you can take to the bank. Um, but I think create, cre- creativ- creatively, it's, it's absolutely perfect to have an unknown in that role. So you completely, there's no baggage. They don't bring any baggage. There's, you, know, you can just interact with that character. So that's what I would love. And, and still, still what I would fight for, you know. And um, I think that there's... Uh, you know, there's a, a, a surplus of great actors. I don't think that we'd have to look very far no. to find a young, unemployed actor because it's, t- it's a tough gig being an actor. I had, a, I had a young Hugh Laurie in my mind when I was reading the book. Okay. A yeah. youngish one. I don't know okay. if that was anything as long like as he's what a, you as had long as, in mind. As long as he's unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's far too old now for that. Uh, uh, Tony, before I let you go, uh, I, had, I had a question, just one question about Man and Boy, which I've always been curious about. And I think the protagonist of that book is someone who always had a sense of hopeless idealism. No matter how bad things got, there was this notion that everything was going to be okay. And I've always wondered if that was you. Are you an incurable romantic? Yeah, I am. I am romantic, and I, and I'm an optimist too. You know, I do. Um, I do. I I I do think that's a it's a good survival technique. I think as you as you get older, as you go through life, uh, you work out coping mechanisms, and you work out survival techniques, and you work out well. You know, how do you deal with like all the negativity in the world and how do you deal with you know the hate that's around and just how, how do you rise above that stuff and I think uh, you know I'm, I'm quite clear eyed I think I'm quite realistic but I think that um, you you know you it's a lovely day tomorrow is is not a bad philosophy Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes Sherlock every time yeah every time yeah it's been an absolute pleasure me too thanks so That was Tony Parsons. He is, of course, the author of the best-selling Man and Boy. His latest series of detective thrillers are well worth the read. The first is called The Murder Bag. Do check it out and let me know what you think. You can tweet me on at Uma Pagan. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.